This is your Saturday morning garden show in the garden. I'm Stephen E. Pop, and here with me is the one and only Joe Truska. Yes, Happy to be there with you are. this morning. Right, sir, same here, same here. Anyways, uh, I'm glad to be here now, and we're going to talk about houseplants, because who wants to be out in the rain? Uh, but having plants in the house now, I, for many, many years, considered myself to have a black thumb when it came to houseplants. I would walk into the houseplant department of any nursery, and there'd be an audible silence, a palpable sense of dread and fear coming from all the plants, saying, please, please, don't let him take me. Don't let him take me. He's he's the one. He's the one. Oh, God. I don't want to die alone. No, 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 no. (laughs) And, you know, it's one of the reasons for many years... Anytime I bought a house plant of any sort, I gave it a name. Oh. And, and the reason for that is I've never been able to intentionally kill anything I've named. That doesn't mean I haven't done it. No, uh, no, but no, no. Uh, So uh, later, though, in my career, I ended up being a grower of what was called indoor color. And, uh, you know, I didn't know at the time, but... What does indoor color mean? Indoor color means a plant that's going to be indoors and colorful uh, in flower. Oh. So hence another name for a house plant. (laughs) Uh, You know, house plants have a, a history going back. A long, long ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, ancient Egypt, Sumeria, uh, China, Greeks, and Ro- the Romans were notorious for uh, planting laurel trees in large pots and, and bringing them indoors, which they do quite well in pots. But um, really, uh, you know, hit, hit the Dark Ages and then come the Middle Ages, and about the only flower you'd see growing in a pot anywhere in a European medieval home was a, a gilly flower, which is another name for a carnation, a uh, small pink carnation. And it wouldn't be until much later in like the 17th century in the 1600s when uh, wealthy aristocrats, uh, mostly in... Uh, uh, and, and during the Renaissance, uh, Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, they started uh, growing uh, citrus trees in particular mm-hmm. and bringing them indoors and uh, mostly oranges, hence the orangery. And Versailles had its orangery where all the orange trees and pots grown outdoors were then carted indoors for the winter time. But after a while, uh, oranges became a, a mercantile trade item, so mm-hmm. kind of fell out of fashion for a while. But um, it it did continue, and especially in England and France by the 18th century, uh, especially when you had all of these uh, plant hunters uh, mm-hmm. going out, Forrester and Hooker and uh, Forsyth, all these other guys going around the world collecting plants and bringing them back to Kew in the Royal Botanical Gardens in Scotland, etc. Uh, and it's interesting that to do that successfully – they had to um, a lot of a lot of the plants they sent back on these ships would die, mm-hmm. uh, so it was always you know maybe a seed or a root or a bulb or something like that, and then along comes this guy, uh, he, uh, well his name was Ward and he was a physician, a doctor and botanist Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward. And he invented in 1842 or thereabouts this thing called the Wardian case. And what the Wardian case was, was 
a sort of a terrarium. In fact, all terrariums and even aquariums uh, owe uh, their existence to Ward and these uh, glassed-in boxes that he created to ship these plants back. Mm-hmm. And he was able to ship, you know, like ferns from Australia all the way back to Kew, and they survived. They did very well. So that is something that you'll still see in some indoor settings for super tropical plants or specialized plants are these cases, Wardian cases. And uh, that is brings up the point of any plant that we attempt to grow indoors is going to be a plant uh, that is out of its environment. Nature did not create plants to be grown inside homes. Uh-huh. Uh, and our homes tend to be, what, dry and warm. And uh, a if, little dark. Uh, and, and light is one of the biggest issues, which we will cover uh, in depth as we go forward. Uh, Joe, do you have ha- house plants at your home? I do. I have never lived anywhere without something growing indoors. Mm -hmm. And that starts, you know, right from the little bit of uh, syngonium that my grandmother gave me. Oh, Arrowhead plant is what she called it. Uh And uh, it is sort of a viney thing, but... um, it does very well indoors. A little bit of light does better, of course, but uh, it's one of those things that kind of grows in water. If you mm, want to mm-hmm, keep it in mm-hmm, water, it sure. grows a little bit in the plant, so sure. it, it's quite quite tolerable. And now they've done all kinds of uh, hybridizing of it, so right. that the traditional one that we grew was thing. Um, with something else. And the other thing, um, and I, we're talking about me, six years old, seven years old, mm-hmm. growing plants. Mm-hmm. The other thing was what she called, my grandmother called, a jade plant. Oh, yes. And Crassula, Crassula. something Crassula or other. ovata, Crassula argentina, or whatever. And yeah. this little boy was so happy when he reached... The, the prime age of 32 and went to San Francisco for the first time and saw it growing there, just growing there. And mm-hmm. it blooms. It blooms. Look, it it's does. got flowers. Yeah, they will. And, and, you know, that's me after growing all those things. But um, I really went crazy with my uh, houseplants. And I tell you everything. I've just tried just about everything in Well, you know, that's, that's, that's the way to do it. And a lot of times people get turned off to the idea of growing houseplants. I mean, most of the houseplants that uh, – you see, houseplants didn't really catch on in the U.S. until after the Second World War. And it was about that point in time uh, when interior uh, landscaping or interior design started coming more into fashion. And the idea of bringing plants in to enhance – the appearance and the environment uh, with, you know, there's all kinds of plants, but most of the ones that were used early on were those that tolerated a great deal of shade. Um, Mm -hmm. So that would be, you know, the tropical plants all need much higher humidities. And of course, you can create that kind of environment in your home, but you're not going to be very happy living there uh, in the jungle in your living room and the dampness and And the curtains rotting off the the molds. (laughs) uh, So, but we'll talk more about that as we go forward. But But, yeah, the the plants. Make me think of the the Victorian period. It's really when there were were a handful of plants that that people had. Parlor palms and uh, and um, uh, 
what do you call it? Uh, Spathophyllum, peace lily. Yeah, the peace lily. Uh, uh, a lot of Sheffler cast iron, cast iron plant. Right, aspidistra. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I ha- once had the biggest aspidistra in the neighborhood, <laughs> and I tell you, it's great fun to see that little white flower come mm-hmm. up. Or actually, it's not the flower, but it's it's yeah. it's, it's right there. But, well, that's um, that's the thing is that uh, a lot of people will sometimes get turned off in the very beginning because they'll go to a nursery and they'll buy a plant, a house plant, that is actually flowering. Now, a lot of these, uh, not all of them, but a, a number of them are biennial plants uh, or they are plants that are, are herbaceous perennials and they will end up uh, going dormant uh, after they have flowered. So they'll bring this plant home. It looks wonderful in their yard for a while. And then, lo and behold, it dies or it appears to die or it fails. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot through trial and error. Uh, and having started at a very young age myself, uh, I've had lots of time to fail. <laughs> lots, <laughs> lots, lots of, but, uh, yeah, you know. Um, it, it was, it was a, a great joy. I was always was very proud of myself growing a split-leaf philodendron. Mm-hmm. Monstera. Mm-hmm. Monstera, yeah. And uh, little did I know on my trip to Belize and living there for a year and a half, it's a huge farm. Oh, yeah, no. It grows and, and, 200 and, and, feet into the air. And it will flower and fruit as well. Exactly. So, yeah, and yeah. I thought, you know, I thought I was proud of my, uh, my split-leaf philodendron, but... It's a great plant. So, so you're bringing up the point of the there are the, all these different types of plants. And basically what you're going to find in the houseplant category, you, technically any plant that you can imagine, you can uh, probably grow indoors given the right environmental conditions for that plant. Knowing the individual plant's yeah. needs is very important. That's why it's handy to pick up a book uh, or go online. But the problem is when it comes to plant's needs, if you've got 10 very experienced gardeners or even plant professionals or experts, if you got 10 of them together in a room and started talking about one individual plant, you would end up either hearing quite an argument or come up with at least 10 different uh-huh. ideas about their specific needs. And that's because unless those 10 individuals are all living in the same apartment, uh, each environmental condition is going to have its own peculiarities and specific uh, needs, mm-hmm. not the least of which is going to be light. But of the types of plants, you've got flowering plants, fruiting plants, those plants that are foliage plants, uh, colorful variegations and such, shrubs, small trees, cacti, succulents, and epiphytes we've covered in other shows, but they all play very well as house plants. And then you've got geophytes, the, the bulbs and the corms and other such. Carnivorous plants, are, which we did a show on, also uh, are often grown as a house plant. Miniature gardens, uh, whether they're mini gardens with mini plants or they're actual miniature vegetable fruit gardens. And then there are bottle gardens, which are those uh, that are planted <laughs> inside a very large uh, bottle somewhere uh, within, uh, the, uh, within the environment. And it reminds me of a story. I had a friend who uh, lived in an apartment complex up in San Jose. And uh, 
he was on the bottom floor and the ceiling of his house or his apartment, I should say, excuse me, uh, started getting a water spot on it and it grew and it grew and it grew and then it started to drip. So he called the superintendent and they checked the apartment above him and it was this uh, newly arrived family, Hmong family uh, from Asia and they had uh, taken bags of soil and put them all over the living room floor and they were growing vegetables uh, in their apartment. Oh. Uh, which, you know, that takes it to a new level, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it is possible. Um, it is. It, um, it's, eventually the uh, yeah. the flooring will buckle. Yeah, well, you um, know, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. So uh, <laughs> it definitely, but, but and then houseplants are also used as air purifiers. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, a great study done by NASA, the NASA Clean Air Study in 1989. And in this study, they, they tested about a dozen different plants. They were primarily trying to see... Um, if they could eliminate VOCs, volatile organic compounds, from the environment, such as things like formaldehyde and benzene and trichloroethylene, uh, etc. And they had uh, some fairly good success, and they were doing this because they were thinking about, you know, space stations and right, know, right. future colonies. But uh, it was discovered later that the amount of plants – uh, that would need to be planted were anywhere from 10 to 1,000 per square meter in order to uh, have the effects of eliminating these VOCs. And they further found out in 2002 that um, it wasn't actually the plants. It was the plants in symbiosis with bacteriums in the potting mix that mm-hmm. were helping to re- reduce the VOCs. However, the plants did have a 10 to 25, you know, and this is under normal household conditions, 10 to 25% reduction of carbon dioxide and anywhere is up to 90% reduction of carbon monoxide mm-hmm. in your house environment. So it's a great right. thing to have. But don't you, don't you also, uh, in order to achieve that, need some very green leafy plants well there are specific plants there are specific plants one of my favorite books is how to grow fresh air uh 50 house plants that purify your home or office uh, by dr bc wolverton and it curiously enough in nasa's um experiment do you know which plant ranked the highest of all of them Sansevieria. Well, that was on their list, you're, and you're, you're close. But to my surprise, it was chrysanthemum morifolium, the good old garden or pot mum, mm. uh, or florist mum, I should uh-huh. say, not garden, right. uh, had the greatest effect coming in second with the uh, Gerbera daisy, uh, Gerbera jamesonii. So, yeah, leafy, not, leafy not the green. sorts of, yeah, but, you know, I mean, pothos and uh, spider plant and all of those are in that, that same category. Mm-hmm. But I digress. So what are the needs? When we start talking about interior, um, interior landscaping or interior design, uh, you know, there are very specific needs. And the, and the first thing that you want to think about, uh, you know, a little bit is the climate of your interior space. Are you dry? Are you damp? Are you hot? Are you cool? Uh, light will be a major thing that we'll talk about here in a moment. But then you got to think about the pots. What kind of pots are you going to use? So, you know, we have clay pots, 
uh, just terracotta, glazed pots, which have a glaze, so you know they're, they're, they repel water. Most of the glazed pots that I have encountered over the years have very poor drainage, so they make a better cover mm-hmm. uh, to hide like a conventional plastic pot or something like that. And then plastic pots, they're the most lightweight and uh, probably the easiest to maneuver. But some people go even further and they'll build uh, wooden boxes or planters. Um, you know, uh, baskets can be lined with polyethylene uh, plastics and, and then filled with planting medium. Or they can, if you don't want to go that route, you can fill them with sphagnum moss and other such things. Uh, but then, you know, it comes to this whole thing of um, the potting mix. What, what are you going to use? So basically when it comes to houseplants, you've got three well, actually, probably about four different types. You've got the all-purpose, and I'm talking about soilless mediums here, not dirt from your garden. But you've got the all-purpose uh, potting mix. You've got the high-humus potting mix. You would have, uh, for desert plants, a cactus-type cactus mix. Mm-hmm. And then epiphytes, the air plants, you're just going to use bark or moss or something like that. The, the all-purpose uh, potting mix is usually best for things like gardenias and dracenias, uh, most of your palms, amaryllis. High humus, you're looking at things like uh, African violets or tuberous begonias, philodendrons, uh, azaleas uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, cacti succulents in the desert. And uh, that's the basic of it. You can make your own soil mix if you want to. Both uh, Cornell University and uh, University of California system came up with, this quite a few years back, about 20 years ago, came up with what they considered to be the ideal formulation. And basically it breaks down to four parts vermiculite or sand, four parts of peat moss, coconut choir, or or, uh, redwood sawdust would be used now. 1% 1% to 2% addition of superphosphate, 2 to 4% uh, addition of limestone, and 4 to 6% of a manure. It could be steer manure or it could be like something like steamed bone meal mixed all together and <clears throat> used as your potting mix. If you wanted to go out and buy that mix, uh, the Cornell University mix goes by names of Jiffy Mix, uh, Pro Mix, Ready Earth, and the UC uh, is is called First Step or Super Soil. Uh, but read the label, see what's in there, and uh, be sure that you're you're not getting something that is not going to work for you. That's going to be too heavy. Most of the time, you want something that's going to stay evenly moist and drain well. Right, right. Because you <clears throat> in the in the house with uh, especially this time of year with the heaters on um those things are drying out really quickly and you really should let them dry out and and uh, especially water, in the winter time water yeah. them only when absolutely necessary and uh don't don't keep them moist it's the 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 uh, worst way, especially succulents. Oh gosh, you know, yeah. you know we yeah. we we lecture all the time about the most succulents grow in places with wet seasons and dry seasons, and um, you can you can um, sort of follow those seasons: uh, winter time water, 
uh, but don't let them sit in water. The basic the basic test is to take your finger and stick it into the pot. If it feels uh, squishy or moist, you've you've got at least another twenty four hours to go before you need to water again. If you take a pinch of soil off of the surface of the pot and rub it between your fingers, and it it's dusty, yeah, it might be time to water. But here's the number one thing when it comes to well, there's a couple of things about watering, but the number one thing. I think is the primary reason houseplants die is typically because we're in the house, we put a saucer underneath the pot uh, to keep it from damaging the table or the right. floor, etc. Do not, do not let that pot sit in water in that saucer. Uh, it, it will rot the roots. And that's mm-hmm. how I've killed most of mine. So after you've watered, go back, you know, half an hour, an hour later and dump that water out of the saucer. Yeah. Um, there are certain plants that want more humidity. Uh, and Therum comes to mind uh, as one, the flamingo. Uh, and what you can do then is instead of a, a simple plate saucer, you get something that's two or three inches deep and you fill it with gravel or um, mm-hmm. something of that nature. And you put the plant on top of that and f- fill that saucer with some water. African violets, for instance, they like to be uh, capillary watered, uh, not overhead watered. They want to draw it up. They from don't the want bottom. the water on their leaves. Never on the leaves and, and no overhead water if you can avoid it. It's yep. much better just to stick it into a, a saucer of water and let it draw the water up. But um, the other thing to consider about watering is the quality of your water. Uh, The general rule of thumb has been if you can drink it, it's safe for your plants. But an awful lot of people have uh, water softeners in their homes. And, you know, water softeners, uh, Neolithic water softeners convert calcium into sodium. And that's sure death uh, mm-hmm. for uh, your plants, outdoors or indoors. Right, um, right. So if if that's the way you're set up, what you'll want to do is bypass or right before the water softener, put in a faucet that you can draw the water off of. Remember that RO water, reverse osmosis, is also removing all of the mineral content from your water. Uh, and hard water in those areas that have very alkaline hard water situations, that can uh, cause uh, leaching uh, from the soil over time. So those plants that require more acid, things in the azalea family, for instance, uh, you're going to need to do supplemental feeding with some form of a a low pH, high acid uh, fertilizer. Yeah. And, you know, folks, it's raining outside. If there's any way for you to capture several gallons of rainwater, um, get it now. Store it. It doesn't matter if it gets all icky and green. The water is all always going to be just perfect for what you need uh, uh, in your in your house and one of the other things I wanted to mention is that many of the most popular house plants like Dracaena or Pothos uh, devil's ivy um, those those plants are really uh, tolerant very tolerant they can get overwatered they can get underwatered and droop and with a little bit of water they come right back for you so yep. so yep. Uh, there are certain ones that are a lot more fussy mm-hmm. but but other other things uh you know 
keep them around. Let's talk a little bit about FICUS because sure. a lot of people are buying FICUS. Yeah, yeah. It's still very popular. It is, and they're generally tough as nails. Uh, you know, the the most popular going way back is probably FICUS benjamina, uh, which is a tree. It is an incredibly – they're tough as nails, but they're incredibly sensitive to uh, light changes. Right. So if you have it and, – and this this is true, and I'm going to talk about light here in a moment, but it's true of any houseplant. You bring a new houseplant into your home environment, start it out um, – in indirect light uh, in, in a sort of a shady spot and give it time to acclimate and you can slowly move it more into light. But the Benjamina ficus, uh, ficus Benjamina, excuse me, is one that is going to drop all of its leaves if you move it from a shady area to a bright area or vice versa. They resent the heck out of it. Right. Now, there are the other ficus that I love and I think it's even more foolproof is the uh, uh, fiddle leaf or lyre leaf uh, ficus. Right. Lyrita and big broad leaves. They can take very low light. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful plants, um, and they're, they're pretty fast growing. And they can take pot culture for a very long time. Although if you yeah. put in a big enough pot, they'll grow ten, twenty feet tall. Right. My my ficus uh, uh, Benjamina got so large that it, it was too big for the apartment. Uh, oh, I mean, it, wow. I, it, I cool. loved it. I. Uh, this was an apartment in Washington, D.C., Northern mm. Virginia. So the humidity, it just loved being out on the north-facing balcony oh, all yeah. summer long, brought it in for the winter time, But eventually, it got so big that I called the Parks Department <laughs> and said, you know, you've got you several it. swimming pools. You've oh, got okay. all of these areas with all this bright light Come by my house and pick up this tree. Well, good for you. I, I was worried you were calling the tree crew in with a chainsaw, but okay. No, yeah, no. good, good. Well, no, good I mean, it's no, a, that's... It, it, you know, you want to keep, because it's a house, you don't want it to take over the house, but if yeah. you've done it and loved it and grew it so successfully, think about other places where it could go. Good Library, right. lobby. Well, you know, back um, in, the, uh, back in the, the 60s and the 70s, I grew up on the San Francisco Peninsula, and and it was born there. And there were these tract homes that were built. The uh, Mackies were the first, and then the Eichlers came along. These, ho- these homes were notorious for having lots of light, open beam ceilings, so you could grow these massive plants with lots and lots of light coming from all directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, privacy could be an issue, and, and of course, plants are great for that if you don't have the curtains. Uh, but... The ficus is one that uh, we also had, and just like you, it grew to the ceiling. I don't know what became of it because I left home and never saw it again. But, <laughs> um, another ficus that's very popular these days, it, it has been even from Victorian era, but ficus elastica, which is the rubber tree. And they have become very, very popular because of the breeding that has been done mm-hmm. with them to create uh, variegations in them and pink edges and blotches. So mm-hmm. they've become a real collector's plant. Yeah. So. One of the things, I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to take a break or, or not. We're going to take a break? Yes, yeah, sure. Okay, because I, I do want to say that, that 
managing houseplants is like managing your garden. You know, that pothos that's been growing and you've been tucking it around and tucking it around and it drops some of the older leaves. And next thing you know is you've got miles and miles of cord with about three leaves on the ends of each one. It's time for you to take action. Absolutely. uh, Change the soil, dig it up, restart those ends, and you'll be so pleased. It will be happier because it's got less uh, distance to transport uh, healthy things. We will talk about uh, repotting and propagation when we come back from our break, and we're particularly going to have a discussion about light. Uh, But uh, we'll be be right back.
You're listening to KSQD, Santa Cruz, KSQT, Prunedale, 89.5, 89.7, and 90.7 on your FM dial and streaming at ksqd.org. I'm Stephen E. Pop, and this is In the Garden, and Joe Truscott and I are talking about houseplants. My first love. Your first. Uh, my first love. I tell you, I've, I've tried them all, right down to the little bean in a Dixie cup. Uh, yep, yep. Great to watch that all happen. Um, my high school science project, uh, I got uh, 33 out of some kind of scale. I don't know what, but I got a 33 and was very proud of it right. for my hydroponic growth of radishes. Oh, well, okay. So, yes, the emergency food. I, well, you know, you bring up another good point. Any plant you can imagine, including vegetables, can be grown indoors in your home and we don't mean you have to have a huge solarium attached to your home you don't have to have multiple skylights everywhere although it does help um you you just need to have the right amount of light for the right plant Light requirements are probably one of the biggest things that um, need to be figured out when you're growing houseplants. Light is broken down into sunny areas, semi-sunny, semi-shady, and shady. A sunny area is one that's going to receive at least five hours of direct sunlight in winter. So that would be windows that would be facing southeast, south, or southwest. Semi-sunny is considered two to five hours of sun in winter, and that would be a window facing east or west facing most often. Semi-shady is a bright, open light, but little or no direct sunlight. And shady is one that's receiving no sunlight but has enough light to cast a shadow. So plants, house plants are typically grouped into one of these areas for light requirements and needs. So where you live can make a difference also. And remember, these were all winter uh, readings. In the wintertime, the sun is much lower to the horizon, uh, whether, well, in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, it's the opposite, obviously, their, their winter period. But that's when the sun can make that direct light. There's lots of things that can interfere with that, such as shrubs and trees around your home. Um, your windows, if your windows are dirty, you're going to reduce the light coming through by about 20%. A window screen can reduce by 30 to 50% uh, in terms of the amount of light that you're, you're coming in uh, from, that, uh, from that place. So that, that direction, that aspect. Where you live also makes a difference in terms of if you're at a high elevation in the mountains, uh, the light that you get in wintertime is much more intense than it is at lower elevations. And if you live in an area that has a lot of industrial smog and or foggy coastal areas, the, the, these are all factors uh, that will play uh, into the light your plants receive. And let's not forget about dusting the leaves of your plants uh, mm -hmm. as a part of regular care uh, to, so that they can have their photosynthesis. Uh, too much light also can affect plants negatively. So in particular, things like uh, chlorophytum, the spider plant, 
what happens when it gets too much sunlight is the leaves begin to bleach and turn yellow or white. Uh, other plants that are affected by too much light are schefflerias, uh, philodendrons, a lot of the ferns, peperomia. And you'll get leaf curling, you'll get brown spots. Mm-hmm. So again, it's this whole thing of avoiding drastic changes in lighting, uh, no matter what a plant's preference is, make sure that you will you know, introduce it and acclimate it to that spot. Natural sunlight, um, you know, as we all know, is if you've ever used a prism, it's, it's composed of a spectrum of wavelengths and frequencies, and and the different colors break down into the infrared, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, and ultraviolet. Uh, there was a very interesting study done some years ago that shows that plants that are grown under only blue light, the blue light frequency, tend to be more compact. And they have lush, dark green leaves, but few flowers, whereas plants grown under red or far red light will flower more and have elongated and expanded plant parts. So you would think to yourself, well, where am I going to get that? Well, that's where the artificial lighting uh, aspect comes Mm -hmm. in. And artificial lighting and lights in, in general... Um, are rated by their wavelengths and their colors and all these different things that you can get. There's incandescent, of course, and then there's the fluorescent. Um, the way that um, uh, light tends to be measured is in candle feet and uh, lumens. So, uh, and this is something I had to use in the nursery uh, industry often inside the greenhouses was with my candle foot meter to determine that we had enough or too much shade on the roof or the plants were getting enough light. One foot candle equals the amount of visible light that falls on one square foot of surface located one foot away from one candle. Uh, Whereas a lumen, uh, one lumen is the amount of light given off by one candle. So at noon on a sunny summer day, uh, if you go outside and you have a light meter, you'll have about 10,000 foot candle. On a cloudy winter day, it can be as low as 500 foot candle. So inside a house, uh, the direct light through a window generally is going to be somewhere between 4,000 to 8,000 foot candle, which is pretty good, and in the shade 600 to 800. So if you want to go out and get yourself one of these light meters, you can figure it out in a hurry. Uh, the, the artificial lights are all rated in lumens. So a 40-watt rapid-start fluorescent lamp initially is going to cast in the range of 2,000 to 3,000 lumens, which is fine, uh, and that's normally going to decrease over time with age of the the light and uh well you know Stephen, thank you so much for illuminating all of you, us you are on, you on are this uh, topic that that do, we know so little about you, and and you uh, will use repeatedly throughout the rest of your life uh, uh, uh impress your friends and neighbors with foot candle now, and and lumen yes. now here's a related question mm-hmm. Those sort of grow lights that we've yep. seen yep. Uh, seem to have kind of a lavender right. tinge to them. Right. Is there a reason why? So um, 
I'm sure there is, but what you're getting is a full spectrum uh, of light. We perceive light as white light from sunlight, and when it's artificially produced in order to get those, because you don't get it from a regular light bulb or a regular uh, fluorescent light, uh, that pinkish, lavenderish light, you're probably seeing some in that blue range uh, of light. There's probably more of that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying I know this for a fact. I'm making this up as I go along. But as usual. long as you say it forcefully and authoritatively, authoritatively enough, then yeah. it's got to be correct. Now, there's yeah. another thing about light. Thank you. Another thing about light, uh, have you heard of phototropism? Oh, all kinds of tropes. All kind of tropes there. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> most of our most of our plants um, tend to want to bend toward a light source. And, and mm. that's, that is caused by growth hormones uh, called auxins, uh, which are highly sensitive to light. So a plant that has positive tropism is one that's going to bend towards the light and one that has negative tropism is going to bend away from the light source. So especially with plants that are rapid growing, whether it's positive or negative, you're going to want to rotate that plant occasionally to mm-hmm. keep it from uh, keep it keep it uniform in appearance. Right. I'm glad you brought this up because one of the challenges that I've always had is I you get these taller uh, cactus. They're, mm-hmm. they're just they're they're ones that are globe that are like a globe, round right, ones, right. and then they're ones that are taller. Sure. And those things tend to bend towards the light. Yep. So, uh, is there anything that we can do to to make sure that that cactus? doesn't grow off in a kind of an arc, leaning tower so of if cactus. It, if, yeah. if it was one that uh, was, was a very uh, fast grower, most of them aren't, but some, right. some can be, uh, that's a, an incidence where uh, artificial lighting would, would be beneficial because you're putting the light directly overhead. Uh, so uh-huh. that it's going to climb towards the light constantly in that regards. Right. You can right. still have window light as well, but if you can get a light directly overhead, remembering that there are cool bulbs, the incandescent bulbs, which we don't see so much anymore, but they're still out there for grow lights, uh, tend to be warmer as well. So uh, if I take uh, if I take a cactus like this and put it outside in full sun. Uh-huh. Is it going to go straight up, or is it still no. going to lean south? Well, if you if it's if you put it out in the wintertime and the sun's low, uh, you know it might start oh. bending for a while. Well, I can't move full the summer. I've, but uh, uh, no, you can't. No, you can't. You know, it's like uh, the Transvaal daisy, uh, Gerber daisy, will follow the sun. Uh, heliotropism. That's yeah. following the sun. Certain right. sunflowers will do the same thing. There's a, there's another important factor to consider, um, especially when we're talking about flowering plants. Almost all flowering plants need direct sunlight or direct light in order to flower. So there's this thing called photoperiodism, and, and you, you heard me talk about this in the past with respects to poinsettias in particular, but it's, it's the daylight length. And, you know, most, uh, most plants fortunately are going to fall into the category of day length neutral. Uh, which is which is great, and that's generally eight to sixteen hours of light daily. But the the plants that require um, a a period of light in the fall 
that is shorter. Uh, so you want 14 hours of darkness in order to initiate flowers of things like poinsettias, chrysanthemums, gardenias, kalanchoe, uh, Christmas cactus, cattleya orchids, and, and bougainvillea. Whereas the long day plants, this is 14 or more hours of light in order to flower things like tuberous begonias, cinerarias, uh, calceolaria, uh, hibiscus, heathers, and nasturtiums, that's another thing to consider in terms of if you're growing mm. these plants indoors. Right. So photoperiodism can be, and obviously, if you're using artificial lights, it's June year-round. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you can control that. But uh, that's, that's the beauty of it. And, of course, uh, fortunately, almost all of the bulbs that we might want to force indoors, uh, whether it's narcissus or hyacinth or tulips or whatever, they're all day-length neutral. So there's, there's no issue. Uh, so essentially, as soon as they get warm and water, uh, off they go. That's it. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, I, uh, again, I, there are so many different houseplants that people can grow. Uh, but again, look at, look for the most common ones. If you're going to start growing something, and, and I insist on having something alive yeah. in the house yeah, at too, all yeah. the time. Uh, also, don't, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, I have cats and I, you know, blah, mm. blah, blah, mm -hmm. and I have dogs and I have, well, you know, I've found that, uh, they don't want to eat anything they don't like. That's right. And it doesn't taste like tuna fish. They're <laughs> not going to really go after it. And if they do uh, happen to uh, like to munch on plants, you can always grow a little dish of oat grass for them. You know? Yeah. It's very nice. Uh, yeah, there are times when they get a little upset stomach and yeah. want a little yeah. bit of uh, green to help them. Now let's cough talk, up stuff on your rugs. Let's talk quickly uh, about the plants that are a little more tricky, and that would be some of your tropical plants. Okay, mm -hmm. and these plants uh, they typically need a temperature somewhere between sixty-five and seventy-five degrees Fahrenheit, and most tropical plants are going to start to decline or fail below uh, 60 degrees. Humidity becomes an issue for these plants also. They tend to want to have a, a relative humidity of about 50%. So you can imagine some people will want to go then and they'll take their little mister and start misting their plants. Well, check and make sure that the plant can tolerate having water on its leaves. Mm -hmm. You can certainly mess them up in a hurry. If they're right. not happy right. uh, with that treatment, you can use a humidifier. Um, and, you know, that we talked about the old saucer trick with uh, the plant on, on stones or, or gravel. There's another very important factor when you're growing houseplants, in particular those that will periodically put on uh, large flushes of growth or flowering in particular, and that is the rest and recuper recuperation period that these plants require. So you were talking earlier about, you know, when is a good time to repot a plant? When, is, when do we cut back on the watering? Well, during that rest and recuperation period, uh, which generally occurs right after a flush of growth or flowering, you don't want to repot the plant and you want to cut the watering way, way back uh, and and just kind of leave it be. Uh, you'll know that it's happening because sometimes the leaves will turn a little yellow uh, or you'll just see it sort of slow down. It's not, it's not making any 
new growth. So, so now, now is really a good time to check out the house plants that you do have. That's right. What are what needs to be done to them, and uh, then come February, that's a great time to start playing with your plants and repotting them, restarting them, getting them going because that's the natural growth cycle. The daylight's getting longer. Uh, it's not too stressful at this time so that, um, you know, you, they can get a good uh, foothold and uh, go from there. I do want to talk about some very common plants that people receive as gifts. Let's, Let's start with hydrangeas. You bet. Somebody walks in with a, f- a hydrangea from the florist. Yeah. It's absolutely gorgeous. You keep it indoors for as long as it makes sense to you, but it needs to go outside. Okay, well... Uh, having been a former hydrangea grower for uh, indoor color, potted color, uh, first thing you want to realize is that the pot is going to be small, smallish. It's going to be at best a six-inch pot, and it's not even going to be that deep. The soil mix that that plant has been grown in is going to degrade very, very quickly. It's uh, mostly organic material, mostly sawdust. Uh, once the plant has finished flowering, uh, hydrangea we're talking now, and we're talking hydrangea macrophylla, the, mm-hmm. the mop heads, uh, you want to cut that bloom off. Uh, you can dry them if you want. You can save them. They're wonderful. But I would then, if, if you're going to plant it out in your garden, you can do that, but wait until spring if it's the middle of winter. Uh, and actually, the market bears hydrangeas most commonly, most frequently, right around Mother's time. So exactly. it's usually a great time to be able to then finish the plant and take it out into mm-hmm. your garden and plant it into a, a not a full shade, but not a full sun location. Right, right. Uh, and uh, give it a good shot of fertilizer, and uh, off you go. If you want, you can maintain it in a pot, but definitely don't leave it in the pot it's in. Put it in a larger pot. Next uh, plant is the azalea. They're sure. often given as sometimes at Christmas time, yep. a full-blooming yep. azalea. They're gorgeous, and uh, this is a plant that it requires a low pH. Uh, we didn't really talk about fertilizer, but whenever you're fertilizing whatever the fertilizer is with house plants, you want to go at about a one-eighth to one-half rate of what's on the label. I was going to say the same thing. With, don't with don't every follow watering. the label. Yeah, don't follow Give the label. Give them less. Less is more. Yeah, and you can do it with every watering uh, if you want. Mm-hmm. I prefer the liquid uh, fertilizers uh, for house plants. Mm-hmm. They're easier to, to use and control. But the azalea is another one that is, it is a low, uh, low pH. Uh, high acid lover, and it it does suffer a little bit with any kind of overhead watering. You should try to avoid that, and just put it in the same kind of environment as you would a camellia or a rhododendron. Right, and the the last one I want to talk about is those miniature roses, which are oh. so pretty on the shelf and given away. They're gorgeous. Oh, it's a miniature rose. It's beautiful. As soon as the flowers fade, get them outside. They're not house plants. They're not. They're not. I mean, I have seen <laughs> rose vines and things grown indoor, but uh, really, you have to have uh, the the ideal optimum conditions exactly to to pull that off. Just like a nursery, and it makes those beautiful blooms. But one of the advantages is most of them, uh, most uh, all of the miniature roses are grown on their own roots. So when you right. when you get a nice pot of a miniature rose, look at it carefully. You you could probably pull 
it apart and plant several of those things in oh, the spring. Oh, what a great idea. What a because great idea. They're, they're, they'll go off on their own. Put them in little pots and give them away as gifts. The disadvantage of those is they're meant to be grown and bloom beautifully in a greenhouse. But once they hit full sun, you might be disappointed in that the size of the stamens is much larger and the petals are smaller. And I hate to say this, but uh, in the nursery industry, that's part of the plan is built in obsolescence. We, we want you to buy another plant. Yeah. Uh, Andy Easton was talking about mm. somebody approaching him, telling him, can you um, – can you a uh, um, uh, phalaenopsis hybridizer. Can you make the phalaenopsis not last three months? Can you make them only last <laughs> shorter? Yeah, well, uh, uh, maybe a month or well, two. Well, just weeks. put it, just put it by your fruit bowl, uh, and and the ethylene uh, gas will do it in just fine for you. So. Anyway, it's been well, great fun. It has.